0: Our guest this week is Dr. Diane Aronsaft. Dr. Aronsaft is Director of Mental Health and a founding member of the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital Child and Adolescent Gender Center Clinic. She's a developmental and clinical psychologist. Okay, I'm kidding. Uh, Dr. Aaron Seft is not actually with us this week, uh, but I, Erin Terrell, recently attended the annual Trans Health Summit in San Francisco, uh, where I met up with two similarly concerned local Bay Area clinicians, one a pediatrician and the other a clinical psychologist, the latter of whom uh, managed to record every session of the conference she attended. Um, What you're about to hear is actually that audio in full, along with commentary by uh, myself, Aaron Kimberly, and the aforementioned clinicians uh, who will remain anonymous for professional reasons. Um, This is the first in a multi-part series where we will bring you into the room uh, of the recent annual Trans Health Summit. Uh, The audio is going to kick off with a recording and will be uh, frequently paused for commentary from the four of us. Um, subsequent episodes in the series will have the same format. Uh, we now give you uh, the first installment with Dr. Aaron Seft.
1: So in introducing myself, I want to say I'm the clone of Sean. <laughs> I'm the cisgender version. So I will say nothing more in terms of what I do, how I think, my perspective. Uh, and I will also say that this is the first time I'm presenting in person since 2020. So and I've done a lot of presenting, but I realize I'm like, this is, this is not a webinar. You can make like dirty, like, looks at me, so bear with me. <laughs> so I have no disclosures and conflicts to disclose. And I want to start by talking about our job right now. And I say our job as gender specialists, you know, help people, is to make good trouble. We are in troubled times, and it is time to make good trouble. Um, I myself am a youth provider. I have a target on my back wherever I go. I think I save the emails I get. I do not respond, but my favorite one was, uh, the subject matter was, you fucking pinko commie stripe." So I like to introduce myself, and you can figure out what a tripe is. On this. Oh, um, so I wanted to just talk about how good trouble comes up everywhere. Ironically, I'm supposed to be at a psychoanalytic conference in San Diego today, but I'm here instead. But I was involved in organizing a panel on preschool children, or I was asked, um, I didn't organize it. I was asked to be a discussion, and There were back and forth emails. And this is an input from one of the planners. And this is um, for the Association of Child Psychoanalysis. I think it is not useful to use the term trans for preschool children. This flies in the face of how we analysts think about development. Trans, a term originally used in describing late adolescence and adults, implies an organized character structure which pre-latency children haven't achieved. So here's a response from one of the planners. That would be me. Self-disclosed, I'm trained psychoanalytically. Quote, I know many pre trans children, so really they do exist. <laughs> so I wanna start by saying they do exist, but they are not short adults. So in order to do this work, With anybody who is in the process of child development, you have to know child development. And you cannot just extrapolate from what you know about adults. So that's what we're gonna do for this next hour, is we're gonna do child development and gender. So here's our theme. Trans and gender diverse children do exist. Our job is to treat them well and protect them from harm. Our mission is to promote gender health in all children, no matter what their gender, and here they all are. So I wanna go now, and also let me start
0: myself this book. Little... I-, I wonder what she meant by that, to promote gender health in all children. It's kind of a, kind of a curious thing to say.
2: Well, as, as we'll hear, she's assuming that everyone has a gender identity Right. And so that needs to be taken care of. Um, and we don't know what it is until the child tells us
0: what it is. Yeah, there's just, yeah. Uh, uh, no way to, to differentiate which one of those, of those those children need medication to achieve their their true gender. She never gets into that. But anyway, yeah, let's carry on. She also
2: doesn't, she just says... Uh, you know, pre pubertal children, uh, trans children do exist.
0: Right. She doesn't, ex- she never says why they, or like how how she's determined that, or basically address any of the concerns about, you know, developmental psychology that the, you know, the emailer raised. It's just like, well, I know they exist. So tough. Yeah. And it's- she's,
3: and she's not doing anything to define what she means by trans because right. I mean, there's definitely gender non conforming kids. There's definitely kids with gender dysphoria. So what is she? What is she identifying as a trans kid? She she doesn't even attempt to to define that. She just seems to assume we all know what that means. Yeah.
4: When and... I first heard her say that at the conference, and she read that email out, I thought that makes good sense. Uh-huh. To me. You know, like how is she going to answer that question? You know, what yeah. is she going to say? And actually, you know, she just basically said, "Well, I'm a pr- I do know kids like that," but you know, she didn't offer any. Any supporting evidence for how she determined them to be? Mm-hmm. Well, she seems to
2: conflate um, gender nonconformity with being trans, right. right? Right.
0: You you think that's what she's doing? Uh, correct. Just like-
2: that's acceptable language now, right? That's what the APA, the people on the APA task force, stress too. That language changes. Um, and now the acceptable language is um, trans and gender diverse individuals.
1: Right.
2: Um, so it it's that distinction is being made, and yet, as we'll hear, she makes no actual distinction. I don't think anyone does mm-hmm. anyone at the health summit between. I mean, if you're gender nonconforming, then you're trans.
0: Yeah. Right. All right. Let's carry
1: on. I'm old. Most of the people I see are young. Um, I went, I started my undergrad graduate studies in 1964. In 1968, I went to graduate school. My area of study, gender. So I wanna tell you what I learned in school at the University of Michigan for both undergraduate and graduate school. So I learned That an infant is designated a sex at birth, male or female. But it wasn't called designated sex at birth at the time. You are male, you are female. And that, within the first two years of life, you learn what was then called your core gender identity based on the designation on your birth certificate. So you learn, I am boy, I am girl. You may have no idea what it means, but it's a self-label. Then, from two to six years old, you learn what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl. So, at the time called sex role socialization, and you get socialized into quote unquote appropriate gender roles. And then, if you are psychoanalytically trained, on the way there between two and six, you're going to fall in love with your opposite sex parent. It's assumed you have two parents of opposite sex. And you're gonna find out, uh-oh, that is like really dangerous. That's like really, really dangerous. Um, something to happen. I could uh, lose my penis or something like that. So I better not do it, be dangerous. So you repudiate the love for the opposite sex parents and you identify with the like sex parent. And if all goes well, you're six years old. You know your core gender identity. I am girl. I am boy. You accept it as permanent. No backseat, sorry. It is permanent. And you solidify a hetero versus a homosexual orientation with erotic desire for the opposite sex parent gone, but for the opposite sex future partner you will someday have. And you identify with like-sex people. However, if something screws up, we should be really worried. There is really cause for concern if none of this happens, if some of it doesn't happen, and the child and certainly their parents must be referred for psychiatric help to analyze the source of the failure and development and to set the course straight. No pun intended.
2: Okay, so here she is um, basically providing a a caricature of the Oedipal situation. Um, It's inaccurate and she does it in a way that um, really simplifies um, what's actually a a pretty complex idea. Um, And she makes it sound like you know this is all kind of heteronormative psychoanalysis so it's it's another way in which she you know she says she's psychoanalytically trained but she just completely dismisses um what we know about child development and not just from a psychoanalytic perspective um and again just claims that it's this heteronormative um you know, theory that doesn't account for gender variance and whatnot.
3: It's also very contradictory to the narrative that gender diversity is just normal and natural and all gender identities are are normal and, and healthy because she's setting this up as we should be very concerned if this heteronormative thing doesn't happen.
0: Oh, no, she's she's parodying. Yeah. Um, the, okay. The, like she's she's basically saying this is the old fashioned incorrect way of thinking. Is okay. What she's so presenting. so she's being
3: ir- she's being ironic,
0: yeah,
3: right,
2: she's right? Right. right From that perspective. Yeah. Okay. But again, it's it's like a caricature. Um,
0: Sorry. Can we just take a take a pause here? My dog is uh, yelping for something, and then uh, kick it back up. One second. Our,
3: our dogs are being a pain in the ass tonight.
2: Should I continue?
0: Yep. Sorry about that. Thank you. Now we can learn from Yoda,
1: you must unlearn what you have learned. That's what I've had to do from then until now. And I would say from Sean's developmental um, outline of being a mental health gender person, I think I qualify as a gender specialist. I think I've gotten there, but I still feel like a gender novice. That every day I'm realizing what I don't know. Uh, or how I really messed up. And I will just give you just an example around that issue of language. So Colt, Santamond and I co-edited a book, The Gender Affirmative Model. In the three years it took to edit the book, I mean to go to collect all the chapters and then we did the editing. We had to change language three times. It kept getting obsolete. It was wrong. It was offensive. And probably we'll, we'll have to change it for the next um, version as well, because I'm sure that's outloaded. So here's the new learning. You have to start by unlearning. And that has to do with our biases, too. So you really have to ask what did you learn, not just in school, but just growing up as a person in the culture you grew up in? So here's what we know today. Uh, There's not just two boxes. There are infinite possibilities for gender. Uh, We have sex, we have gender identity, we have gender expressions, we have sexual identity, but they are separate. They are not all the same. They intertwine, but we need to differentiate them. We've learned that our gender identity is the being of our gender. Maybe it starts with that homonucleus in our brain, but it is the being of gender. We then learn, oh, the gender expressions, well, that's the doing of gender. That's how we do our gender in the world. And then we learn, oh, we have a psyche. So any child is gonna use their psyche to establish their unique gender self based on nature, nurture, and culture. And so what we have is, it's not all about constitution, and it's not all about environment, but they live in dialectical tension with each other throughout our lives. So we have a gender self that will encompass both core gender identity and chosen gender expressions. And for every child, we now have If you think this is just a simple thing, if you want to work with kids, I don't want to scare you away. But every time you see a child, you have to think about how neuroscience interfaces with genetics. You have to think about genetics interface with the intrauterine environment. I'm going to put a in parentheses here, soft data. There appears to be a correlation between having some using some form of reproductive technology to conceive a baby or gestate a baby and gender diversity of the child. Uh, we're trying to explore this further with research. So I can't say we have the, we have soft data. So sometimes it's really ask, good to ask a parent in private, how was your baby conceived? Just get the information. The reason I say in private is because particularly in straight families, they don't always communicate to their kids. So you wanna make sure that you're not leaking information in front of a child, but if you can't get that information. Okay, now we have
2: physiology. I'm curious what she means by soft data. Yeah. What what is this correlation she's talking about? Um, You know, I haven't read everything there is to read, but I, haven't seen
0: that. Yeah, I'd never heard of that until she until she mentioned it, and I'm also wondering. Um, so, if that's true, so if there is some sort of correlation there, um, wouldn't environment be more of a? I don't know. I just I just feel like there would be environmental reasons that uh, either of those two things would uh, present. Anyway, let's.
2: Yeah, or she has some sort of notion of. Um, I don't know that somehow IVF leads to some sort of genetic differences. I I don't know. It it doesn't make sense. Right. That's she says
0: it's very important. I've ever heard of. She says it's important to basically determine this but why or what it means or how that could happen is not specified. Right.
2: And also when she says, you know, gender identity is the being of gender. Uh what does that mean she she never really defines gender identity except for in this this fairly mystical soul-like sense well you know? i
4: i think that serves her purposes though because if it's so ill-defined it's hard to object to right if it's the mm-hmm. being gender then it's quite subjective and it's whatever anyone feels and says about themselves so
0: um
4: hard to um, it's hard to test for that
0: or Yep, unfalsifiable right
4: yeah.
1: exactly yeah and the organism interface with environmental provisions and then we have socio cultural political landscape both wraps around and is also pushed in new directions by all the aforementioned forces and that is what I call the gender web So I'm going to tell you about the gender web. I made it up. And I made it up because at the time we were all talking about the gender spectrum. I thought that's great. There's variations and different colors along the line. It's linear. And it was always male over here, female over there. And I thought, that's not an abacus. It just isn't like that. So I was actually looking out my window one day and I saw a spider web.
4: And I thought, ah.
1: I think that works. Why not think about this? Why not think about a web that spreads in three dimensions, not just two, and that every one of us in this room has a unique gender web that weaves together nature, nurture, and culture. Now, again, that's only a that simple nature, nurture, culture. Can we move on? Oh, no. It's <laughs> all the individual threads. You've got your chromosomes. You have your hormones. You have your hormone receptors. You have your gonads and your primary sex characteristics. You have your secondary sex characteristics. You have your brain. You have your mind. You have your intrauterine environment. You have socialization, family, school, religious institutions, community, and you have culture, values, ethics, laws, theories, and practices. However, I discovered, nah, it is a fourth dimension. This is totally Twilight Zone because the fourth dimension is time. And time is critical. So every individual alters the gender web as they weave together nature, nurture, culture over time. So it doesn't stop at age six, and it doesn't stop at age 70, it's your whole life. And if, as Sean was inviting us to do, take a look inside at your own gender journey. It doesn't have a stopping point. you. So keep looking. Now, let's talk about the gender web and fingerprints. Just like fingerprints. You look at everybody in this room, nobody has the same fingerprint. Everybody's fingerprint is unique. However, the one you're born with is the one you're going to die with. And that's where we part ways, because our gender web is going to change. Our fingerprints won't. So we're both just like, but not at all like fingerprints, when we think of a gender web. Now, what about adults and a child's gender web? So we're talking about parents, caregivers, professionals, teachers, whoever it may be, us. The gender web is absolutely each child's personal creation belongs to the child if the adults grab the threads they're going to mess up that kid's gender web and they're going to leave this child feeling all tangled up and captured in what i call a false gender self one you have to present to the world that's not really you now if on the other hand you are a wonderful parent who facilitates your child weaving their own personal gender web, not based on your dreams, but based on theirs, that child's going to feel supported, expansive, and they can construct a true gender self, which is your authentic, real, right in the middle self. Now, this is one of my favorite studies, which Sean made reference to. It's the Pulse study, uh, and it was done by Jake Pine and Associates in Toronto a while ago, but what is so wonderful about this study is look at the differences when your uh, youth has been supported versus the youth who has not been supported in their gender. And the most compel- and the blue is supported, the yellow gold is not supported. The most compelling statistic in this grid is the suicide one, attempted suicide. in youth that were not supported. 4% in youth who were. We'd like it to be zero for everybody. But the difference between 4% and 57% is remarkable. Another one is, if you look at the second one, your mental health. Very good when you're supported. Really not good when you're not supported. So it simply says with data, support the children. But support for some people means, of course, I'm going to support them. I wouldn't let them be one of those weird folks who's to them beat up. We're talking about acceptance, that kind of support we're talking about. Now, let's talk about best clinical practices when you have before you a transgender or a gender diverse child. Essential therapeutic tenet about gender for anybody but particularly in work with children, because we tend to speak for them. It is not for us to say, but for the children to tell and for us to listen and leave the pipelines open so they can tell. Is it a boy or a girl? I don't know. It can't talk yet. And that is why many people are doing gender neutral or gender free parenting right now until the child can tell them what their gender is. They know the sex, they often don't tell anybody else, uh, and they see where the child lands and let the child speak for themselves. Now, our therapeutic task. It's really simple. All we have to do is get a youth gender in focus. Our therapeutic goals, we wanna facilitate that true gender self the authentic one. We want to alleviate gender stress or distress, gender noise. And I just want to underline what Sean made reference to. The overdiagnosis of ADHD in all children today, but particularly in children who have a lot of gender noise going on, is ridiculous. So when you see, in our clinic at UCSF, you open the chart and I can say, a majority of the kids already have a diagnosis, anxiety, depression, ADHD. Anxiety, depression, ADHD. Substitute gender noise, gender stress for the majority of those kids as the root of all of that. And it's not ADHD. It is gender noise inattentive. is what I would use as the diagnosis.
0: You have this. Uh, we obviously opted to do the Erin Saft uh, video as the first installment of the series just because she's kind of a... Uh... You know, gender Wu superstar, um, but now I'm realizing she's referencing a lot of of, of Sean Giamatti's uh, talk, which we will do uh, a, a later episode of. But um, he went right before her, and he's talking about gender noise is basically the way he's describing gender dysphoria, like kind of like you know, um, uh, I, I don't remember exactly how he described gender dysphoria, but he ultimately just called it gender noise in the end um, as a way to describe it. And that's what she's referring to uh, uh, when she says, you know, basically, we can get rid of all these other mental health diagnoses if we just basically realize that it's all gender noise. So again, everything is gender. Like, yeah, that's the, 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 the one answer to all psychological distress is, is gender.
3: It's hard to know how to even come up with counter arguments because I, I, like the whole thing, like I remember studying queer theory back in the nineties and it was all about just learning the language and recycling it. And you would get an A like, as long as you've you know, learned all these big, fancy words that Judith Butler is, is using and you string them along in a sentence and then send it to your professor, you're going to get an A. And, and you're not saying anything. And, and I feel like that's what she's doing. She's saying absolutely nothing but using the lingo of of the community, right? And it, So it's so hard to even know, like, it's so disorienting. It's a very disorienting use of language.
4: It sounds very science-y too, mm-hmm. the way she strings words together, the way she talks about all these different potential contributors to one's gender identity. It sounds like she's putting together a really strong But then when you actually look at what she's saying, it doesn't, it doesn't really add up to anything. It doesn't. From and some... this whole
3: idea, the whole ideology rests on that, right? It's like, if I just say things that are really confusing, and I've got letters behind my name, you're just, if you don't understand, it's just going to make me seem really smart. Right. Yeah. right, really, when actually she's saying absolutely nothing. But that's, that's really how this whole movement works, is by just stringing a bunch of really big words together, disorienting you and making you feel like you're just dumb if you don't get it when really there's nothing there's nothing to get there's no substance at all in what she's saying
4: but and you can kind of see it with this metaphor for the gender web which she admits right at the beginning that she made it up um and and it kind of goes to the heart of what seems to me like a really big paradox built into this whole idea which is she repeated several times this true gender self right this i this notion of a true gender self and that's our job is to help the child find their true gender self and yet at the same time she talks about how it changes over life right Mm -hmm. it's malleable. so how exactly Mm -hmm. are we supposed to land on that true gender self and help the child manifest that in the world how does that work it just seems inherently contradictory to me
0: and she also says one of the one of the One of the weaves of this web is uh, nurture, right? So it's nature, nurture, culture, and time, right? uh, You know, nurture being a big facet of that. But at the same time, if you do anything to interfere with your child's gender, you're going to fuck them all up. You're 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 getting them their their gender web tangled. But I'm sorry, isn't isn't that nurture like isn't that one of the facets of the gender web? You've anyway.
3: It's really undermining parent, parental authority too, and and especially you know the hetero. She took a jab already in the first five minutes of this talk. Took a jab at any heterosexual parents. You know, heterosexual parents are more likely to fuck up your kids. It, you know, it's it's um... right. Like if
0: they don't talk to their parent or if they don't talk to their child, like most straight couples don't, or something along those lines. It's just like you know, the gay couples have it right. The straight couples are are, are lying to their kids on a daily basis. Is basically.
3: Uh... And that yeah, and that it isn't a parenting role to guide your children or or correct misconceptions or anything. I mean, she's talking about a, a parent, it really just undermines parent the parental role and authority in in guiding and molding how kids think. That's that's an important that's important for parents or, or any safe adult to kind of to guide the developmental process. And she's completely undermining the the value and the role of parenting.
4: She actually defines, she she asks, what does it mean for parents to be supportive, right? When she looks at the study and she said, it means acceptance. Mm-hmm. So it, it means you're supposed to just take what the kid says at face value and accept it. You're not supposed to push back regardless whether your child has other diagnoses, regardless of whether they're autistic, regardless of whether they've been abused. You know, she doesn't mention any of that, right? Just accept- yeah that's the
3: effect. only option to be a good parent. Yeah, just just yeah, just that affirm affirm affirm, right? I mean, she I think her next book should probably be how to raise a narcissistic child. Because that's essentially going to be the boundaries. effect. Right. It's it yeah. no but no boundaries, no guidance, no limits.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Rates emotional dysregulation and entitlement. Yes.
2: yes. And then she throws in that um, you know, suicide statistic um which is very likely wrong um i I don't know that particular study but we know from all other studies that there's no good evidence um and she's saying it in the context of how to be a supportive parent so you know this is the would you rather have a live son or dead daughter
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah, yeah she's good. saying if you don't support, there's a 57% chance that the child is going to uh, attempt or commit suicide. Attempt. Uh, mm-hmm. Attempt, okay. Att- yeah, attempt. And yeah, so so that's if you don't support, and support means accept. Yeah.
2: And then just going back to, I mean, you know, this was already mentioned about the inherent uh, contradiction of gender identity is is malleable. You know, it doesn't stop when you're six. It doesn't stop when you're 70. Um, Then, then
4: why the medical interventions?
0: Mm -hmm. Right,
4: right, right. Right. It makes no sense. It's like you're carving it into their body.
0: Yeah,
4: Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Change their mind. Okay, onward.
0: Onward. I want to underline Mm -hmm. building gender resilience.
1: And that is not being polyanna. isn't everything wonderful, but how do you meet up with adversity? Adversity, how do you know what your support system is for the watchers at your back and your kid? And that goes to securing social support. Kids can't do it on their own. And that's where we come in. Um, many of us, myself, are trained to stay in your office let other people do political work, do your psychotherapy. It will not work. Particularly right now, that we have to be ambassadors, advocates, and advocates and activists. Not all of us will do it in the same way, but you have to do it, you have to make good trouble right now. So our underlying assumption in the gender affirmative model is that every person is entitled to live in the gender most authentic to them, a gender that does not necessarily match the sex designated at birth. Or the culture's social definitions or expectations of gender expression. I consider that a universal right. I think we have to be culturally sensitive, but I think this is the right of anybody who's a human being. And we call that gender health.
2: But she's talking about gender nonconformance, right? Or she she's just saying that, you know, in an ideal world, um you know, boys and girls could dress how they want, act how they want, have whatever interests they want. And that, you know, that would be okay and acceptable. Um, but she turns that into being trans.
0: They they always lump those two things together. It's, it's um, any, any, any um, aversion to medicalizing children is an aversion to gender nonconformity in children. Um, it's contradictory, but, but but they always, you know, it's how they, how the campaign uh, works so well is just by automatically lumping those two that that yeah, seem to mm-hmm. on their face contradict, but it's just bundled together,
2: and she's saying that, you know, we have to be ambassadors, advocates, and activists, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing to say at what's supposed to be somewhat of a scientific conference,. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just implies also that, I mean, it's one thing to do activism outside of the therapy room, um, but you know, there's a, a a big question about whether we should be doing activism inside the therapy room, right? I mean, that's that's not that's not therapy, that's not neutrality.
3: Yeah, which is common sense. If it was any other political leaning or ideology, I mean, that would just be common sense, right? I mean, we're told. Don't bring your politics. Don't bring your religion. Don't bring, you know, th- these things into the room with with a patient. So how is this how is this topic any different? Like it's I wouldn't try to indoctrinate my patients in a Christian faith. so it it's not appropriate to bring activism into the room with with the patient
4: but when you bring this belief system into the room, and that's your starting point, then you, of course, you run the risk of making your patients sort of, you almost sacrifice them on, on this uh, belief system, right? Like you're not thinking about what is in the best interest of this young person in front of me. You're thinking of, okay, this is what I, I'm trying to make a point here. So this must be the only possible solution for you, given mm-hmm. my belief system that I've accepted. mm mm-hmm.
3: And if we look across cultures, I mean, there's naturally occurring phenomenon that it just occur in in human in humans. And but when you look across cultures and over time, there's different ways of understanding these naturally occurring phenomenon and integrating it into societies. I mean, gay and lesbian people in Samoa look very different than gay and lesbian people here in North America, and I don't feel that. She's being very respectful, uh, because we live in a pluralistic society here in North America, where every family could have a different culture. Mm -hmm. And and she's not really talking about working with families and working with the child's natural environment to make sense of this, you know, perhaps very organically occurring gender nonconformity. And what does that mean within the context of that family and that community that the child lives in? So it's really a type of colonization that she wants to sort of force her way of thinking into the, the family and the community culture without exploring with that family. Well, what does this mean? Like, what does gender nonconformity mean within your culture? How do we integrate this within your culture in a way that might be mutually benefic- you know, satisfactory to the child as well as the family? And that's what true support is when she's talking about children who aren't supported are you know tend to feel more suicidality and that's and that's true if we're talking about true support if we can't find a way of integrating who that child naturally is into the family system and into the cultural system but she's not talking about exploring with the family what is their cultural system and how can how can they make sense of this without and maybe for some families that does mean medicalization and maybe in some families like First Nations people, maybe they believe in a two-spirit context or two-spirit concept. And so it, it just reeks to me of this cultural colonization that we take these academic theories from queer theory and, and this, you know, the stuff that she just totally made up and basically saying to parents, well, you're, you're not good parents unless you believe in this concept that I've just pulled out of my ass.
0: Yep.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I think it also gets back to what you said before, Erin, about sort of this narcissistic approach to your your child, like, you you know, there's no context, you know, even though she listed that, that long list of uh, factors that could affect a child's gender identity, and I'm sure culture was one of them, but in fact, she doesn't put them in the, the mm-hmm. cultural context, mm-hmm. and it's very much a focus on this child, what do they think, what do they believe about themselves, and none of that other stuff matters. Everyone you can else- see how you can
3: see how this approach would really wedge it come between the potentially the child and the family, if the family's cultural background isn't going to accept this one very specific way of thinking about this, and the child's like, yep, yeah, but I do. You know, maybe the child is all on board with queer theory because it might sound fun, and and and, and so it, I think what we're seeing in practice over and over again is families being ripped apart by this approach.
0: Yeah, they get very explicit uh, later on in the talks about, yeah, just how uh, dangerous those kinds of parents are that are, uh, you know, opposing medical intervention. Uh,
4: And and I I just want to say one more thing, the other point um, about how political it it sounds, what she says, like the need to to make good trouble. I mean, it sounds so hubristic to me, like. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, our job. We're saving the children. We're saving the world. This is, you know, it's, it's, um, and there's also this false humility like, I'm a gender novice. And yet at the, she clearly doesn't consider herself to be a gender novice. She has this whole theory I'm learning every day, but, but like, what is it? What is it? She's mean? making it up
0: more She's and more every day.
4: Up. And, and what does it mean that, okay, we're just, I learned all this developmental psychology. And I'm throwing it out. And you know, I wrote this book and the, the pronouns, all the all the 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 language changed three times. We had to keep writing it because we were offending people. What does that say about how those words reflect actually the reality of what's happening? That you have to keep changing the words. Like so, how does it how well can it actually reflect reality if that's what's happening? I don't know. It's it seems reality
2: is malleable.
4: It's a reality journey.
0: <laughs> right. Reality is expansive.
4: Yeah. And yet we have these bodies, you know, these real bodies. So very inconvenient. Yeah. As a physician, I deal with bodies. So real bodies.
1: Now, here's a challenge. That's all very funny. You have to be an eye that watches. You have to be an ear. And most importantly, you have to be a mirror. You are one of those external mirrors and you could make it the best of times or the worst of times for a child, depending on what you mirror back in your mental health work, whatever work it is. You say, I say, oh, just listen to the kids. Well, how the hell are you going to know what they're saying? Some of them don't talk at all. Um, And somebody, some say, I don't know. Or can we just not talk about this? (laughs) And I will say, I was trained psychoanalytically, that you wait till the child brings something up. You never bring it up. Well, let me tell you, you could wait till till hell freezes (laughs) over. Because a child by age three may have already gotten the message. Uh, We don't talk about such things, or if I do, I get the look. And I don't know who this lady is, so no. So, therefore, it's important for us, whenever we do any kind of assessment, to include gender. You know, we look for anxiety, we look for depression, we look for how do you feel how tall you are, whatever it may be, that's routinely asked about gender. That's routinely. If she doesn't want to talk about it, that's information. So here we are, the eye, the ear, and the beer.
0: I think let's we all just... probably brain exploded at that one right there. Uh, so she's basically saying, I was trained, you know, uh, <laughs> that you never uh, bring something up. You know, you wait for the child to bring it up. Well, the child's not going to do that. She's she's informing us and uh, every child needs to uh, talk about gender. So basically, you always bring up uh, uh, gender and ask them anyway.
2: Yeah, let's just put the idea of gender identity in in every child's mind. Right. Is basically what she's saying.
0: Right. <laughs> I know they're thinking about it and I know whenever they talk about it at home, they get the look. And so they feel like they can't talk about it, but here's a safe space where we're going to talk about gender. Even if they say they're uncomfortable or they don't want to talk about it, it's important that we talk about it.
2: And if if, if they're talking about it, that's material, right? They're either suppressing it or repressing it or something, but it's, it's certainly there. There's no doubt about that.
3: Uh, I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, the role that therapists played in the false memory um, contagion that happened, right? I mean, people are so highly suggestible and, and therapists played a huge role in, in the, in various social contagions in the past. And that, that's that just really, to me, that's just really glaring in what she's saying here that she's, she's inserting ideas and going looking for things in these children that could create something that had wasn't there and maybe would never have been there. Had she not inserted it just like a false memory.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was
0: a prominent, uh, uh,
2: uh, Satanic panic.
3: Yeah. Yeah. She obviously didn't learn a damn thing from that. <laughs> but
4: it's no. a little ironic because right before she says that she says, your job is to be a mirror, right? Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm curious. Is is that the therapist's job? I mean, what do you guys do in therapy? Are you
0: mirrors, or are you? Like, what what is what do you? I thought she was talking oh, about the parent. I thought she was she. Ref- I th- I thought she was saying that the parent is supposed to mirror. Maybe I. Missed I missed it. She was
4: talking about the therapist. Okay. I mean, I'm not sure, but but I I I mean,
2: we 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 reflect. I mean, you know that that's one thing that we do among many things is reflect the patient back to them right but that doesn't mean affirm mm-hmm. that means more okay you're you're saying this right it's
3: more like active listening yeah to mm-hmm. paraphrase back what they've said
4: right and I think of it also as asking good questions maybe to help them better understand I, I don't know isn't that what therapists do as well? Like you don't just sit there necessarily and listen all the time. Don't you also ask them questions to help them dig deeper?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, different therapists have different approaches and, and some do, um, you know, think that questions shouldn't be asked a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's some views on that. Yeah. Um, But, but her statement that, you know, in psychoanalysis, you're, you're taught to never bring up anything before the child does is fairly extreme. Um, you know, it's one thing to kind of let the child lead, um, you know, see where it goes and certain things, maybe depending on the situation, there's so many variables to consider. Um, so on the one hand, you don't want to insert any sort of ideas, or, you know, maybe the child isn't ready um, to think about something, or, you know, it is, it does tell you something, let's say, if a child doesn't um, say anything about his or her mother, right, Mm -hmm. you're three months into the treatment, and they haven't mentioned that, well, yes, that's curious, you know, that's something to think about um but you know she makes a blanket statement about um you know never bringing up anything um before the child does so it, it it's it's one of her many kind of just incorrect um you know criticisms of psychoanalysis
3: it's a little too black and white, you know, these always and never statements. I mean, there there are there are times where, you know, like even in harm reduction, because I used to work at a youth clinic. And and so when our younger clients who are minors, we had a different approach to harm reduction than we would the adults. So with adults, we might provide them with a menu of some of the harm reduction, um, you know, like clean needles and stuff, um, and say, like, are you needing any of this? But with children, um, you have to be a lot more cautious and conservative about that because you don't want to I- introduce these ideas of substance use right. to the children by offering them harm reduction materials prematurely if you if they're if you don't even know that they're using so i mean there's some truth to what she's saying but it's not as it's not as black and white as you you know never or always
2: she seems to feel the need to attack psychoanalysis you know whatever that's about
3: owner she feels attacked
0: by the field i would hope so
2: Maybe, but there's plenty of people in the field who are on board. True. With, you know, her ideas or some some variation of what she says.
1: There's our aims. As I said, we want to discover this child's true gender self. That's our, for us to do that discovery. And we want to promote gender health which I defined already, which is again, opportunity for the child to live fully in their authentic gender with acceptance and without aspersion. We want to reduce gender minority stress. Now, if you're going to do that, you've got a kid who goes to school, you have to pay attention to school. Look at the data and the amount of bullying that LGBTQI youth get every day when they go to school. We live in California, isn't that wonderful? Most of us here, not all of us are from California. And I can tell you, I just talked to a ninth grader at Berkeley High, trans kid. Something happens every day, every single day for something. Um, my favorite thing is they uh, th- this particular kid and cohorts in a class where they're going to be talking about sex and gender and they knew it was going to go bad they created a game called trans bingo and you they basically put a chip on every time someone said something transphobic till they won and could call bingo so you could pass it on to any of the kids who were. <laughs> um you definitely want to uh, strengthen a child's gender resilience and that involves certainly the supports around them but sometimes they need what i call their own psychological toolbox
0: strengthening the child's uh, transgender resilience, encouraging this idea of looking for uh, uh, acts of transphobia in, yeah. in
3: sex Berkeley. education
0: class. In <laughs> yeah, in Berkeley.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yes, strengthen the resilience by eliminating anything that they could find the least bit uncomfortable or offensive. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I was a very extremely gender non-conforming kid from an early age. My parents would tell you this. There were times when I tried... And made an attempt to be less gender nonconforming, but I was very. People thought that I was male for large parts of my childhood. I was put on the boys' baseball team. I was bullied sometimes, but definitely not every single day.
0: Mm-hmm. And this you is would, in very rural Canada in the eighties. Very
3: 80s. rural Christian farming community. Yeah, in the seventies and eighties so I don't, really buy, I don't really i don't really yeah i don't really buy it that these kids are being bullied every single day you know just because of their their gender i mean maybe because they're hypersensitive to maybe because they're not resilient and they're offended by every little sideways glance or that was very much the theme of
0: the of the conference was um just like obviously the tone has to be we are so put upon and so oppressed. And this is where like gender minority stress is such a problem. Um, and, and it all leans upon having to, uh, having to comb through every single interaction, every, um, you know, to, to look for situations where you're being uh, uh, transgressed upon. Uh, we were talking about that there in person was like, this in itself is just horrible for somebody's mental health to always be looking for for situations where you're being, yeah, uh, transgressed upon again, yeah, that ninth grader in Berkeley High School <laughs> making a game about transphobia in the sex education classes, like you, your your whole your whole inner world is looking for.
2: It, it, it's a, it's encouraging. Saying, it's encouraging hyper and paranoia.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And people are getting frustrated. I mean, I believe I do believe that people maybe there is more pushback on everything trans in the classrooms these days, because everybody is getting frustrated with having this stuff, you know, these, these ideas and everything trans and this obsession with, I mean, if these kids are having to play, you know, trans games and are learning about gender and sexuality, and, and if the teachers are really promoting this in schools and it's frustrating people and and so maybe there is more pushback in the classrooms, but that's not because of it's not because of true transphobia or or discomfort with with um, gender nonconformity because if, if that was the case, I would have been bullied probably more than I had been. But if I was going to school every day, you know trans, 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 trans and, and expecting special treatment and getting offended, by everything that everyone was saying, I probably would have been bullied a lot more than I was. Because people are frustrated in, with this cultural climate and the obsession with everything gender. Mo- yeah. I think most people are supportive, even when they don't understand. I mean, and, and even like when I'd say I was bullied, I mean, there were a few incidents where I would say it was true bullying. But most of the time, it was just people trying to make sense of it, right? I mean, yeah. they would so they would make a comment like, are you a boy or a girl? Or why do you look so yeah. much like a boy? And, and it, it was just because I was different and it was something they'd never seen before and they were trying to make sense of it i mean that's not bullying that's just that's just human nature yeah.
0: now it's committing a genocide
2: it is but it's very hard to imagine that this would be going on at berkeley high school of all places I mean and there's so many
4: trans kids there. I mean I recently read an article, you know, there was an issue of their local the Berkeley Jacket, the their, their newspaper and it was dedicated, you know, it was like one trans topic after another. Mm-hmm. You know, so
1: what can they do in a situation that works for them? Some kids are very extroverted and they have no trouble saying Oh, for God's sakes, haven't you ever heard of a girl with a penis? What's wrong with you?
4: And they walk away.
1: Other kids shrink in fear. And they're very introverted. And so we need, they need a toolbox. The other kid needs a toolbox, you know, to kind of, don't just say, fuck you. There's another way you can kind of <laughs> communicate what you're feeling. But toolboxes. And this is where working with parents is so important. We can do that in therapy, but the best people who really can help kids are their parents at the end of the day when they're thinking about the day and what to do the next day, but we should just all do it collaboratively. And the kids come up with their own that are smarter than any that we come up with. Oh, let's put in the, this in the box. Okay. So again, I want to talk about supporting the caring environment so the environment can support the child. It's just like in the airplane, you know, they tell the parents you put the mask on first, one thing we have forgotten about is grandparents. The most moving work I've ever done was running a grandparents group, Gender Spectrum. And it started spontaneously at one of the Gender Spectrum uh, family conferences, where it ran through Sunday. Late Saturday afternoon, Joe Obama, who was running the, the, the weekend, said, we have a problem. We have all of his grandparents who have come. And they said, there is nothing here for us. And to theory to me is, could you run a grandparents group tomorrow? Well, (laughs) I've never done it before, but sure, why not? It was standing room only. And it was so moving and it had morphed into then an online grandparents group, which I did, and it's now self-run. They don't they want to do it themselves. And hearing grandparents talk to each other and really and, and they're not all on the same point what I call the acceptance spectrum, and that is a spectrum. Um, And they work with each other, and it's really beautiful to see. So do not forget grandparents, and of course, parents. Don't forget siblings. They are the best of worlds, or the worst of worlds for a trans kid. Like in one situation many years ago, where this child did not disclose to others that she was transgender, except when her friends came over and her little brother would go, you know, my sister has a penis, so you want to work with that sibling and, and help them support their child better. I mean their their sibling better. Okay. So now I'm gonna do this for both children and adolescents, because Jack isn't here today and he was gonna do the adolescents. So Sean and I are kind of covering for both of us. Um I mean for, for Jack. So here's a laundry list. These are your these are the kind of challenges and I would invite anybody to add to this list because it can go on and on. Clinical challenges when you're treating pre transgender, or gender-diverse children? And I'm just doing it all at once so you can see. Oh, it's a blast. So how do we establish standards of care when we don't have evidence-based scientific longitudinal data for these children? And I will say I was on the task force for the WPATH standards of care version 8 on the childhood chapter. We did it. We did it. It's not that hard. And we do have evidence. And I, I would say, it's not all positive it's evidence based on numbers and quantity. Clinical expertise is evidence. What you learn by being a clinician for 35 years, I consider that evidence. That is useful. Yeah, so now we go. But well, wait a second, can a young child really know their gender? And what about all this research on her sisters and d sisters? And we got this little five year old, but research says the majority of them aren't going to be there by adolescence. Got that. And then we go, oh, okay, maybe they can know their gender, but can they really know it enough to warrant a social transition to change their name, their gender markers, pronouns? Okay present, and then, wait a second. If in this gender-affirmative model, gender variations are healthy phenomena. They're not disorders. How come we have a mental health diagnosis for kids? Why? Why would we have a diagnosis, gender dysphoria of childhood, uh, in a mental health statistical manual, if it isn't a disorder? um i will raise my hand and say we shouldn't um and so the next one is if it was what i said before okay this gender affirmative model says if you want to know a child's gender listen to the child and i would say the hardest part of doing this work how are you supposed to translate what they're saying for example the Increasingly most common gender assignation that children are giving to themselves is non-binary. But if you ask what that means, just like Sean was saying, you know, it's kind of hard to tell somebody what your gender means, but either they're stumped or you hear a thousand different explanations of what non-binary is. I think it's wonderful that basically if we boil it down, it means We don't believe in two boxes. That's the main thing. So we're not going with the two box stuff. You guys, I don't know why you did that, but we're not doing it anymore. But then we have to find out for this child, what does it mean? And that's the artistry of doing the work because every child is a snowflake painting their own canvas to mix up some metaphors there. Okay, now let's talk about adolescence. Now we get puberty and beyond. Again, last year huh we're being asked to weigh in on medical decisions we're not trained to do that you know we're not upstairs in the medical you know, program we're down here in the mental health program or next door in the medical program and how are we supposed to weigh in on whether a kid should have puberty blockers, gender-affirming hormones, gender-affirming surgery? And then it's, okay. kids are really fast-moving organisms. There's a lot going on. There will be change over time, brains change, development changes. And how are we going to differentiate an authentic gender articulation from gender as a solution to another life problem or a symptom of an unrelated psychological disturbance? And I just want to put in parentheses it's easy. Ninety-five percent of the time, it is not driven by other things, but it can happen. So we need to know how to differentiate that
2: and pay attention to it. How did she get that ninety-five percent?
0: I think she pulled it out of her ass. But uh, but it's it, it's remarkable that she's asking all these good questions. Like she's putting up all of the you know all all, all the all the legitimate you know concerns about. The affirmation only approach. And then she just sort of either doesn't answer it or just sort of bats it away, like, well, 95, you know, that, sure that's a valid concern, but 95% of the time, that's you know, it's 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 completely unrelated. Yeah, where is that 95% coming from? Yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: It's like she she intends it as um, <clears throat> to provide an instruction manual, basically. Like these are questions that people are asking, right? Stupid questions that people are asking and these are the obvious answers
0: in in like i think in two two instances she pretended to give an obvious answer like with the whole um you know why are why are we giving a mental health diagnosis to gender nonconforming children she's like got an easy answer we shouldn't or something along those lines and that one and then this one where it's like okay 95% of the time it's unrelated um are are the two answers she she gave but yeah
4: she also asked the question how are we mental health providers supposed to weigh in on what's a medical decision, but she doesn't answer that question no. so which is a great question, I think mm-hmm.
0: yeah, a so lot of great when, questions in there When
4: and at what point does the decision get made, right? that's that's uh, something that I struggle with when I see these kids as a pediatrician in my practice. and do i am I the person that says, "Oh, you should go to the gender clinic?" you know? Um that's what most pediatricians do when, when a kid comes in with gender dysphoria, they say, Oh, I don't know how to handle this. I'm just gonna send you to the gender clinic. Surely they will go through some process to see if to see what you need, they're the experts. And we know what happens, actually.
3: I mean, Paul Vesey um in his research makes an argument that the childhood um type of gender dysphoria should be taking out taken out of the DSM but i mean he weaves that argument in a very logical um coherent sort of way and his argument is that gender nonconformity for the most part is um a developmental aspect of homosexuality that for the most and and in some in cultures like samoa where he studies homosexuality the distress related to the gender nonconformity doesn't tend to exist in cultures that don't that in cultures which don't try to suppress gender nonconformity so his argument is that it's just a developmental aspect of of homosexuality that only causes distress in environments that that are hostile to gender nonconformity, that's a very coherent argument to me. That you know, it doesn't have to be pathology. That if it only causes distress because of the the response to the to a gay or lesbian um, gender nonconformity, mm-hmm. but that's not what she's saying, right? I mean, that nothing that she says has that kind of coherent groundedness in in reality. It's so hard to follow what 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 she's saying.
4: Well, the implications of what she's saying are different, though, right? Like she's mm-hmm. saying, if your gender variance is not a mental health disorder, it has medical implications. So the so whereas what Paul Vesey describes, there's no medical implications, right, for those exactly.
3: Cases. Yeah, because in in Samoa, it's when we talked to to Vesey, he said it's actually very unusual for Samoans to medicalize. Why would they? Like it, it right. serves no purpose for them because they can just openly be gender nonconforming. conforming right. and, and, and that's a much healthier model in my, in my mind. I mean, I know right. Samoans have their own issues, but it in an environment where they can just be themselves and be gender nonconforming, they don't need to medicalize. It's not considered a mental disorder. It's just a, it's just how gay is expressed in some in many cultures. But it's so backwards here. It's it's that we need to somehow create a culture and an environment that's hostile to gender, not true, gender nonconformity, and our solution is to medicalize it.
4: Well, it's like what they do in Iran, right? To gay people. It's,
3: just, it's exactly what they do in Iran. But and and we don't see that because we've divorced gender nonconformity from our concept of of gay and lesbian. And that's a fairly recent. Like, I remember back in the 70s, 80s, it was com- it was common sense. Most people understood that gay and lesbian people were more gender nonconforming. And I remember there being a very deliberate attempt to separate gay and lesbian sexuality from gender nonconformity back in, like, late 80s, early 90s and i think i think aids had a lot to do with that i've said that, that on the podcast before i think aids probably had a lot to do lot to do with that because it was a lot more common for very highly effeminate gay men to have sex with straight men but i think with aids i think that probably scared off a lot of the heterosexual men or or highly masculine bisexual men that were sleeping with the effeminate gay men that there needed to be this separation, I think, you know, because now the now gay people are considered, you know, have this disease called AIDS that's going to kill people. So I think it was an attempt to sort of segregate, um, especially gay gay men in particular, and I think lesbians kind of just got,
1: you know,
3: wrapped up and then caught in the same loop. But I think it, it I because that. I mean, it definitely correlates in terms of the timing for when there seemed to be this effort from the gay and lesbian lobby. They um, started to see a lot more straight-looking, straight-acting the personals ads, where it, it really started to become um, gay, gender nonconformity in the gay and lesbian community became more and more shunned from late late '80s onward. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of any other explanation for that other than AIDS and and wanting social acceptance, and they were more likely to be socially accepted if you weren't gender nonconforming, because gender nonconformity makes people feel uncomfortable. And so there was a real big marketing push to, to separate the sexuality from the gender nonconformity. And I think that was a mistake. I think the gender nonconformity is very much about the sexual orientation. And I think we've created this crisis because we've tried to separate those two things. I don't think she 80-
0: even talks about sexuality at all
3: she doesn't and that's exactly what this queer theory movement has done because now they're saying well no all, you have all these trans people that are it, trans they say is completely separate from sexual orientation so you have trans and those trans people can be of any sexual orientation so they've they've completely divorced gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria from sexual orientation and i think that that i think is a deliberate attempt to discredit the blanchard typology because the sexo- sexology research very much sees heterosexual gender nonconformity and homosexual gender nonconformity as two completely unseparate, un- unrelated things. And I think when you have the gay and lesbian community saying, well, we want to disown gender nonconformity, and you have heterosexual men with autogynophilia saying, well, we don't want people to know what that means and what that is, I can see from a political point of view, let's whitewash this whole thing by completely separating our concept of trans from sexual orientation.
0: I don't think Diane Aronsaft understands any of that, to be honest.
3: Probably She's not. Just... Yeah, we kind of got off on a tangent.
1: <laughs> and I'll just give you one example. It was a child that was brought to me at age five. She had never shown any indication that she was exploring gender in any way. There were no breadcrumbs. She came home one day and said to her parents, I'm a boy. My hair, I want oshidashes. That's all I'm going to wear is oshidash overalls from now on. They cut her hair, she got her oshidashes. She didn't change her pronouns yet, but she insisted. And the parents said, It doesn't make sense. Yesterday, she was all frills. Well, you know what happens? So I spent a year with this child, and this is what I discovered. She couldn't sit still in class. She was in a public school in a very wealthy community where everybody was so well behaved. And she noticed that when boys acted up, it was you know boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. But when she acted up to the principal's office, and she hated going to the principal's office, so she said, "Ergo, I'm going to be a boy. I won't go to the principal's office." So when we found out that she was dysregulated and couldn't sit still in class and attended to that, made a gave you know, her five four accommodations. She didn't want to be a boy anymore, and she wasn't being sent to the principal. So that was one where. It took a little time, but we sorted it out. So, next one. All right. You don't have a developed, fully developed myelin sheath until you're 25 years old. How are you as a teenager going to be able to make informed decisions about irreversible or only partially reversible medical interventions? And I ask you, if that's so, how are we letting 16-year-olds drive Probably letting 18 year olds be in the military, really. Um, Shouldn't we wait till they're 25? Okay, next one. Uh, What about this fertility issue? Can a youth receiving gender affirming medical interventions that may impede or negate their ability to have genetically connected children have the foresight to assent to this potential foreclosure of fertility? You know, When kids are teenagers, we're lecturing them all the time how not to get pregnant or make somebody else pregnant. And now we're saying, hey, you want to think about being pregnant? (laughs) Uh, Or getting somebody else pregnant? So how do we deal with this fertility issue? Um, And does that warrant waiting until they're 30 when they can really think about having children? Uh, How about this one?
0: What does it mean? So, sorry, I just have to comment on that. You know, she's she's saying, you know, like, oh, oh, we, <laughs> we don't like teen pregnancy, right? I thought I thought we don't like teen pregnancy, so why are we worried about uh, interfering with, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, an adolescent's fertility? Yeah. Anyway, that's such a stretch.
3: Something I I noticed from working with a lot of the youth, and I don't know if this is true. Of those that have the classic dysphoria or if it's more um their gd kids but I've noticed when I was assessing the kids and by kids I mean like late adolescence I noticed that they had absolutely no foresight like they could yeah we would ask them things like like where do you see yourself when you're 30 or 40 and I think I would have been able to answer those questions uh, and I, but they had just have absolutely no they can't think, Beyond the present moment at all. I thought that was very unusual with that population. That the and I think a lot of it is because the the ROGD kids, they're they're building their identities on something that isn't embodied. Like they're building their identities on anime characters. And you know, so it, how do you if that is your identity that you're building it on? Whereas I was building my identity on the the men in my community. I wanted to be like those guys and do what they were doing and but they're so disembodied with their identities that they 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 can't think a month in advance or a year in advance let alone whether they want to be parents when they're 30. And
0: and some of them will actually be honest about that and they'll, they'll say, "Well, I I never wanted to be a man." You know, it's like I just want in uh, the the whole the whole Tumblr boy meme um mm-hmm. that they're that they're trying to achieve and
3: yeah and that might not be unique to the to the trans identified population that could be youth in general that are spending all their time on their cell phones and building their identities on things that aren't really based on material reality but uh, so i don't know because i wasn't i was only assessing the kids coming in for for wanting hormones i wasn't doing the same assessment for the all of the other kids so maybe that's just a product of our of our time and youth in general that that they just they're kind of, they're not really living in reality and they're not thinking about their future in terms of reality. I mean, I've heard, heard people do like surveys of, of preteen kids saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And a lot of them are now saying, well, I just want to be a celebrity or I just want to be rich. Like they're, they're not really thinking about a future in terms of just practical realities of things like what kind of job you want and do you want a relationship or not? And, could be just a sign of our times
0: interesting well if
4: what diane erinsoff said was true that the largest what did you say the largest percentage of kids now are claiming to be non-binary mm-hmm. i mean that's sort of like a obviously not connected with biological reality anyway right so where does that lead you to in the future um, right. How do you how do you
0: envision that? Yeah, right. it, 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 kind
4: of uh, maybe not exactly a dead end, but certainly uh, not a not a clear end point where that that's going.
0: A lot of it almost yeah. seems like like a, a deliberate rejection of growing up, like like a, a sort of Peter Panning of oneself is the whole opting into the, the non-binary or the trans thing is is just sort of like a. Yeah, like like stopping uh, development. So it makes sense that that looking into the future is like what do, what do I envision at thirty? Well, no, I'm I'm trying to avoid that eventuality entirely by not growing up.
3: It's very non-committal too, right? It's like I'm just going to keep all my options open. If I'm non-binary, then yeah, there's yeah. no limits.
4: Yeah. yeah, right, right. And I think you also see it maybe this hesitation to grow up and like kids not getting their driver's license. Um, yeah, as as eagerly as they did, you know, twenty years ago, um, and um, you know, just has another manifestation of you know, it's it's not that exciting to grow up. Who wants that?
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And, and no. I just want to say, I mean, what she said about comparing medicalization choices to, you know, um, driving a car, driving a car, or or even joining the military. I mean, that's mm-hmm. obviously a bigger decision, but and, but um, you can't drink alcohol until you're 21. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it just seems, I don't know, it's, it's so ludicrous. It's such a ludicrous comparison.
0: Yeah. And she, cause she doesn't answer, she doesn't actually answer the concern. She's yeah. just like, oh, well, we let kids do these things. So, should we just stop letting them do these things too?
3: Yeah. Joining the military is, I mean, it's a big decision, but it's not an irreversible decision.
0: Right. Right. Nor is a driver's license.
2: And even if those were bad decisions, that doesn't mean a third de- bad decision is good.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I thought it was interesting, the example she gave. Uh, uh, the only one um, of, you know, the kid who the girl who was saying that she's a boy and it turns out she was only saying that because she was getting in trouble mm-hmm. Um you know, for her behavior in class because she's a girl. And, and, but Aaron staff seems to be incapable of applying that same logic to so many other kids who are trying to, you know, adopting a trans identity because they want to opt out of their sex because of the way that they're, you know, especially girls.
0: Right. Yeah. But she, I think she would point to something like that anecdote she told to basically be like, well, there's a clear distinction. You know, from the really trans kids and the ones who just see you know a, a systematic loophole mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah I know and that, it should be obvious to know, all of us, but
3: a lot of them use the mature minors act too in as an argument, you know, like in British Columbia, anyone sixteen and over can make medical decisions for themselves, but it's it's so different in any other type of medicine because it's just more concrete and limited, you know, like if a doctor makes a diagnosis and says, okay, you have cancer. And here's the prognosis. And here's the, here's the, what I recommend as the treatment. And then the youth can then say, yes, I accept that treatment or no, I don't accept that treatment, but it's, it's, it's much more concrete because there's a concrete diagnosis that's been made. There's a concrete, um, Pathway, if they don't accept treatment, there's a, you know, and so, but when we're talking about identity, where a young person is basically giving themselves a diagnosis of I am trans, and identity can shift, there's no concrete diagnosis, there's no concrete, there's no crystal ball to say, well, this is how it's going to go, or this is how it's going to go, like, it's such such a completely, it's comparing apples and oranges by applying the Mature Minors Act to making these life, you know, permanent medical decisions where we can't really concretely diagnose, yes, you are trans, we've done a brain scan, or we've done a blood test. And we know for certain, this is who you are, or what you have, and it's going to be permanent, We, we don't know that. So it's this, it's this very, um, I don't know how to articulate that exactly, but it's just such a, you're talking about identity, which can shift and change. And what adolescents like adolescents have such strongly held beliefs and very, they're very certain about their identities as an adolescent. That's a developmentally appropriate for adolescents. I mean, I had very strong beliefs that I was going to be X, Y, and Z when I would grow up and, and was fanatical about certain rock stars and stuff. And I remember a teacher saying, well, you know, when you're 30, you're probably not even going to like that rock star anymore. And I remember laughing at him. Well, of course I am. I think they're awesome. But that's the nature of youth and adolescence, right? Is you just have these very firm, you know, very passionate beliefs about things and and it evaporates when reality hits in. And so, so as much as she's talking about, you know, I'm the expert on childhood development, she seems to be forgetting mm-hmm. so many of these actual developmental concepts.
2: And those passionate beliefs that adolescents have are very temporary. I mean, I know that. Yeah, um, yeah. Patients is they are 100% certain and just passionate about one thing, and two days later, they're they're saying the opposite thing. Yeah. Something completely different, and they're just as passionate about that. I mean that that's part of normal development. Mm-hmm.
0: Right?
3: Yeah, having a crush on the girl across the room—it's like I, that's a, you know, it's this is my soulmate, and it's going to last forever, and I'll die without that person. And then the next week, it's somebody else. Right? <laughs> that's that, that's normal adolescent behavior.
0: And all of this requires throwing out everything that anybody previously understood about developmental psychology.
2: Yeah, and and Erin, that analogy that you made about um, uh, you know a a child or adolescent, I guess, being able to make a decision about a cancer treatment. The thing is that we know the the risks and the benefits of that treatment. Um, you know, whereas Erin Saft herself says that we we don't know we don't have these long term outcome studies. So we're asking young people to make life altering decisions um, about so-called treatments that have no evidence base.
3: Yeah. Well, she's also saying that they're weaving that web, you know, for the rest of their lives.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: It's, yeah. Very contradictory.
1: That We have to deny or limit treatments shown to reduce life-threatening risks. If parents don't consent, and now I'm going to add to that, if states are legislating against it. So if medical or government policies don't allow it, and ethically we know that doing nothing increases suicidal risk, incredibly, what do we do about that when we're working with youth? And the last one, if parental acceptance is a key component of good mental health outcomes, for transgender, gender diverse teens. how do we proceed if it's not in place? knowing the negative consequences, higher rates of depression, suicidality rates go up, and so forth, absent parental support, and how we proceed is we do everything to move families from where they started to where we hope they can go. Because most people really do love their children. And if you can develop trust and an alliance and say, yeah, there's risk of being beaten up in the world, nothing compared to the risk of living tangled up and having your gender web taken away from you, Um, there's much higher risk there and much greater chance of living a good life as long as there's supports around you. You may have to do gender by situation and very dangerous situations. I call it the Harry Potter cloak. I do not like to use Harry Potter imagery these days, but I like the cloak um, because you are in control. When you put the cloak on, if you want to make yourself invisible to someone, you put the cloak on. And I will self-dispose I'm Jewish. I have been in certain countries where I will not wear Star of David. And that to me is me putting my cloak on. It doesn't feel safe in certain places, but I'm very proud to be Jewish. So I just kind of use that, you know, extrapolating from my own experience. So let's do so What if it's gender and something else? I I gave the example of gender solution to another like problem, symptom of an underlying disorder. There are sometimes certain forms of psychosis where gender gets thrown in the hopper in terms of an avatar of self, and it's not for true gender self. Uh, but it's part of the inner chaos. So, we, on the other hand, never say if you're schizophrenic, you can't also be trans. Uh, in the same way, if you're schizophrenic, you can't be a parent. You can. Uh, but I the think there's just factors that have to be taken into consideration, uh, particularly when it comes to surgical interme- uh, interventions and resilience. Now, it kind of usually a signal of disordered parenting or socialization we all we think now i mean i do a lot of extra i did i stopped doing expert witness and a lot of them are custody battles where the accusation is the supportive parent is grooming a transgender child making them be transgender and they are disordered the child should be taken away well have you ever tried to get a boy to wear a dress who doesn't want to uh that's as much power as parents have in that situation around gender identity. And really, the disordered parenting is more the parent who pulls the um, pierced earrings out of the child's um, ears and takes them to the barbershop to get a haircut after they've been living with their mothers and saying, we're not doing that here. We're making a boy out of you, a real boy. That's disordered parenting. But uh, we do have to pay attention what's going on in the family system. That may be affecting the gender of each other. Um, this one, myth, is to saying, big myth. Fake news. Gender is an obsessive phase of an autism spectrum. There is a significant correlation, you spectra, between gender spectrum, autism spectrum. I call it the double helix rainbow kids. We don't know why, but we know the word of it. Uh, a fair number of the children in our clinic have had di- uh, autistic uh, autism diagnosis, and a fair number of children in autism clinics are trans. So there's it's a thing, and we have all kinds of theories about brain development, about they're free from social cues and the way we're restricted, that we actually were stuck reading them around socialization and so forth. So, yes, you... You may, you will, if you are a gender specialist, meet up with autism. So get some training in autism. When we did the childhood chapter, we talked about that. We said, well, we're not gonna require it, but we're really gonna recommend it for this reason. Now, you may have gender and a separate psychological issue. It happens all the time. I mean, gender is just part of us. We have a whole other parts of our life. You may have just lost your parents. Uh, Many other things may happen. You may indeed have separate, you, you may really have ADHD, the real kind, and you're transgender. So it's an and thing, and it doesn't preclude going forward, for example, with puberty blockers, social transitions, or gender-affirming hormones. Now, as I said, your role with adolescents. Is to weigh in, make recommendations on gender-affirming medical interventions, and talk about. Um, it's not just insurance companies, but gatekeeping of mental health associations. We require um, we require at the child adolescent gender center a letter of support, and from a mental health professional, and I must have a recommendation at the end that says, from a mental health perspective. We think, I think, I have assessed that this intervention is in this child's best interest. And indeed that there may be some risk of not getting it. Well, there are certain professional um, organizations and insurance companies who advise providers, you can't do that because you're not a medical professional. You can, as long as you say, from a mental health perspective. But we've had many kids who had to find somebody else to write a letter because the provider said I don't want to get in trouble with my organization and they told me I can't do it. So push back if somebody tells you you can't do it. Um, And that is again, puberty blockers, hormone surgeries. You may be asked to write letters of support or gender health evaluations or assessments and it makes us nervous. Uh, And it involves advanced training and it is what right now Drawing all the hate from the critics. The medical professionals are the ones who will to go to jail. We will lose our licenses, just to let you know, in terms of the accusations of we are harming children, putting them at risk, and so forth, with these lack, with these non-evidence-based, non-FDA-approved uh, interventions. Um, so that can be anxiety-provoking. This is us right there, <laughs> some of the time. And that's why we wanna all come together because that helps this go away. Uh, goals always remain the same, get a child to use authentic gender in focus, provide all the nutrients for the child or youth, for not just their gender, but their overall well-being, so they can thrive. So again, they, let's just go back. You are gonna get them in focus and give them all the nutrients. Now, again, I just want to emphasize, and I'm going to look at time. We still have some time, so I'll run through this quickly because I want to have a little time being able to also ask questions. Children, not third adults. Uh, so you have the no child development, and there are different age clusters. It's not just, yeah, there are kids. Well, there's zero to two, two to six, six to 10, 10 to 14, 14 to 16. So I'm going to run through, oh, 16 to 18, sorry. Forgot guys them. So we have to think developmentally because they're not short adults. And at the same time, there are actually no boilerplates for all of development. Some of it is very culture-bound. Uh, so we can think of them as schemas and think about what is culturally specific. At the same time, there are some things that are universal. Kids typically crawl before they walk, before they run. In every culture, if you look at development, we want kids to eat well, sleep well, learn well, play well. That just kind of goes across. So let's think. I'm going to now think developmentally, developmentally within Western culture. Okay? I should say I'm both a developmental and clinical psychologist. So, developmental. Okay, we're go- I'm just going to zero in here on ages two to 12 because I I had planned to stop. Okay, zero to two, here's what's going on around gender. Uh, as I said, still today, some grown-up is going to decide the sex of the baby, usually by looking between their legs when they come out. So that's going to happen. And then, unless you're doing gender-free parenting, People are going to start treating the baby accordingly, and they're going to assume that this baby's sex is going to match the gender they are. That is an assumption in our culture. Oh, you have a a boy? Oh, great. You always wanted a boy. Well, you're having a child. We'll see if it's a boy. Um, So as early as the third quarter of the first year of life, a baby can already start showing evidence a hint about their true gender so there are toddlers tear off dresses uh, or turn their onesies into dresses or tear out barrettes Um, you already see it starting to happen even in boy choices color choices which are culturally determined you know these days pink is for girls used to be for boys so it's not fixed in stone and as kids will tell you today Duncan that was just a people color um, so, in a gender binary world, within the second year of life, the child does acquire the knowledge, learn from others, I'm a girl, I'm a boy, and that's when that early distorted mirroring starts to happen. The child goes, I don't think so, this is not. for some cases, uh, no, this is not feeling right. So, most babies are fine. Okay. Okay, got it. The majority of people in this culture have a gender that matches the sex designated birth, but not everybody. And some show very early signs, not okay. You got it wrong. So here's an example of a baby not okay with it. So Khalil is two and has an older sister, Phoenicia, four. Khalil, precocious talker, full sentences by 18 months. And when people said, what oh, a cute little boy, Khalil screamed, me, girl. When Khalil's mother said kindly, honey, Tanisha's a girl, but you're a boy. Khalil cried inconsolably and threw his toys at the wall. When Tanisha left her doll on the floor, Khalil stole it and hid it under his blanket. When mom left her favorite scarf on a chair, Khalil grabbed it and turned it into long flowing hair. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. you got it. David was somebody who took the Christmas skirt from the tree and came out. And just, <laughs> stole it from the tree and came out because it had jewels on it. Said, Don't, I look fabulous. Um, <laughs> so now we go two to six. So remember, this was up a full oh, stage. Not t- okay. So a child learns how to do their gender. They observe, they get direct messages, they get behavioral shaping and reinforcement, and they do it relationally, just through their connections with the important people in their life. They absorb in our culture what it means to be a boy or girl, how one is a boy or a girl. It's also, it is a really sexy time. Um kids learn about their body parts and they love to play with them. And some of the times we worry is when a kid doesn't love to play with them because they have gender dysphoria. Uh, and those are the kids who would like to see them as radioactive. And this is the tag every day that you all got it wrong. Why didn't you put me back inside? What do you mean there's a God? If God was a God, God would have given me the right things down there, you know? Mm-hmm. So the body dysphoria for these children may be very intense. You hear stories of little kids trying to cut their penises just off with a nail clipper. It's not castration. It's replacement. It's the notion of I can craft the vagina if I just get rid of this bulge. This one's not right. There's magical thinking for everything. You can do switchies on gender. But she can do switchies on gender. Frog can become a prince. A prince, a girl can become a boy, it all works. Which is true in all the traditional tropes too, except they say, oh, by three you learn you can't. But these kids say, oh, yes, you can. Um, so now, it's generally assumed that by age six, a child will have a stable sense of their gender and understand no sex. That's traditional. And this can cause a lot of stress for a transgender or gender-diverse child if that assumption is placed on the child. So here's a case of a gender-stressed preschooler. Ways is four, assigned female at birth, has a fraternal twin? Uh, is a fraternal twin with a sister? It may be possible that the twin has a brother instead. At age two, I do have a penis. At age three, well, can uh, a fairy bring me one? Age three and a half. Well, can we go to the store and buy one? Age three and three quarters. I only want to play with boys with penises. So this is a child working out the stress. And as long as we say that vagina equals girl and penis equals boy, we're creating stress for children where they don't, not me. Um, I've been taking, in terms of gender literacy, talking to the kids, there's XX girls and there's XX boys and there's XY boys and XY girls. And if you have XX, before you come out, you go vagina and all that inside like you, a uterus you make babies and if you have xy before you ever come out you go testicles and a penis and then from there later we'll find out which gender you are so again watch your own language don't talk about boy parts and girl parts the parts okay so now let's go to ages 6 to 12. it is not so sexy anymore it's too quiet down some sure. this is the era of rules and regulations it's concrete thinking according to Piaget, and it is applied to gender, rules about gender. And so, but here we have, just as clothes make the sick man, so clothes can make the gender. It is really easy to socially transition before you go through puberty. Get a haircut, go buy the clothes you want to wear, do whatever you want, the way you present yourself, and you have matched your gender while you're clothed. And for a lot of kids in gender dysphoria, body dysphoria goes down until puberty. And at puberty, there's a trauma. Or uh, because your body's gonna betray you and going into the quote unquote wrong puberty. So this can be the most carefree time, six to twelve, for transgender, gender diverse children, as long as no one gives them a hard time. The hard time comes from the outside. Uh, Body dysphoria is often at its lowest. And here's an example. This is a 9-year-old girl who wants to know how to be a boy. Angelica, 9. Dressing in gender-neutral clothes for as long as she can remember. Last time she wore a dress, she was 4, and it was, quote-unquote, miserable. She's anxious, somewhat downtrodden, comes to see a therapist. Before even sitting down for the first session, she announces to the therapist, I know who I am, but I don't know how to do it. Who I am? A boy. She knows she can't ask the fairy or go to the store to get a penis. When Angelica needed to figure out the rules and regulations for a social transition. By age 10, Angelica needed to figure out the rules and regulations for social transition, and she did. She was now definitely, quote unquote, masculine set of clothes, watchful eye on the social mores of being a boy in the Michigan, San Francisco. So socializing himself as a boy. So I am going to stop right here with this major developmental question and a young child builder of gender. And that's important for social transitions, and it's important later for gender-affirming medical treatments. So social transitions could be name change, could be pronoun change, could be presentation change, and really it is a switch in gender from the gender others have known the child to be, to the gender the child knows himself to be. And no medical interventions are involved before puberty. Unlike what Tucker Carlson will tell you, even though he's been fired. So just underline, no medical interventions before puberty. Um, so uh, the research, we had the persister research. Most of the kids in that research who were diagnosed with gender identity disorder early in childhood didn't have a diagnosis at adolescence. There were some who did. So those were the desisters and the persisters continued with the same diagnosis, continuous through childhood. The, where this went was, so let's not do anything until they reach puberty because we just can't know because most of them are not going to be going in the same line. So the problem is they were, I looked into these are apples and oranges. You're not measuring the right things and talking about our measures. You're not differentiating gender identity from gender expressions. The, The number of the children who got that diagnosis they were most of them proto-gay boys exploring gender on the way to discovering their sexual identities. Not all of them, but most of them. And they never intended to be transgender. They never were. And the the first sisters were consistent, persistent, and insistent. Um, as we see in the children, we see them throwing out all of that language of persistent sister Mostly what you have to find out, who is this child? Are they dealing with gender identity, gender expressions, or both. Um, but don't conflate the two. So here's the question. How could we possibly sort out for sisters and sisters And if we can't, how can we want, allow children to transition? And if a healthy child is expected to know the gender they are, here's another question. And so many people doubt that a child of six can really know that they are transgender, how come? This children, gender children, can and are supposed to know their stable gender identity by age six, but transgender children can't. Isn't that a double standard? Double standard when a situation is desirable for one group but deplorable for another. So I'm going to stop there by simply saying our research at uh, we have a foresight NIH research. I've been studying, and we're looking at uh, puberty blockers and uh, gender affirming hormones, medical and psychological effects. 90% of the children have socially transitioned prior to reaching puberty. Prior, and this was uh, in a clinic population. But prior to starting blockers, 90% of the kids appeared to know their gender well before puberty. So, questions. In our last few minutes or thoughts or information you have you can share with us about our shorted not shorted bills here. Yeah, I mean. Um so with the framing of like um XY girls or XX boys, if we take away the association of body parts with gender, mm-hmm. um, I'm just wondering in your experience, does that change? The dysphoria aspects of people's relationship with dysphoria, if they're not associating the body with gender. Um, so the question, if you didn't hear it, is if we if we take away vagina equals girl, penis equals boy, have we eliminated gender dysphoria? No. I wish we could have, but it makes it better. It makes it better, but anthropologically, I have not found any culture that doesn't do something about gender, not what we do, but something that I haven't found a genderless culture. And there is a body component. And I am not a trans person. But I'm a cis children, a cis children, I was a cis child, and I'm a cis adult. And if somebody said to me, well, you know, part of you being cis, you're a cis person with a penis. I want to change it. And I don't know where that would come from, maybe my socialization. But I don't, I think what I'm hearing about the homonucleus is really important gender messages about embodiment that we cannot ignore. You know, I've had so many people say to me, because I was raised a feminist, I am a feminist, why are you doing this work? It's only socially imposed that people have to mutilate their bodies to be the gender. Anybody can just accept the body you have. Be the gender you are. That is internal discordant mirroring for so many people. And what you see is the exposed test. We can say it's culture bound. I don't think it is. But how much happier people are. Like when Sean was saying, you can have, you can just keep your breath. And he was like, oh, no, just no. Um, so this is why I think yes, it helps with the dysphoria. So the story I have is. There was, I was working with a 10-year-old trans girl with a 15-year-old, oh no, she, she was nine at the time, with a 13-year-old cisgender sister. Her sister had just gotten her period. And so I said to the kid I was working with, do you ever wish that you had a body that worked like your sisters? And she looked at me, she said, are you kidding? I am so glad I am an XY girl. I don't want this experience and the, uh, the blood and and get get pregnant thank you xy so this is gender euphoria around i am an xy girl and she is older now and an xy girl and not asking for vaginoplasty in any way so i so the, the answer is it depends but even if it doesn't reduce dysphoria about the body and it says we have to stop <laughs> what I will say the last thing is it reduces gender stress and we are wanting to build resilience strengthen and health and reduce noise and stress so I would encourage you all to take away thinking about XX and XY girls some people do it by body parts some people are born bodied this way bodied that way but a lot of kids get really grossed out by that ooh, I don't want to talk
0: about penises, you know, or ooh, but they, they really like like letters, X, 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 Y. They don't know what chromosomes are, but they know the assignation. So, thank you. Oh, the contradictions. Just every sentence. Yeah. We did it.
2: That was oh, the th- and you're that muted. The third time I heard that.
4: <laughs> I, I just want to make a comment on one thing that infuriates me every time I hear this that her contention that you know the reason parents might object is because oh your kid might get beat up because they're going to be one of those kids you know the parents are transphobic it makes me so angry that she doesn't acknowledge that choosing this path means that kids are going to be this is going to, they're going to have to deal with the medical system for the rest of their life, right? There's all these medical implications that she never even mentions. It's so disparaging of parents. I mean, that the only reason they might object is because they're transphobic, that they're not thinking about what's best for their child over the long term. I just find it infuriating.
0: Yeah. And she even says, you know, I believe that you know most parents genuinely love their children, or something like. The implication is is that you know if if you do genuinely love your child, then you know you're going to. Yeah. I
4: also take issue with this idea that of puberty being a trauma, like it's kind of a a trauma that maybe we created, if Mm -hmm. potentially. I mean, it's always a a disruption, right? But it's some. It's part of being a human being. I, I find it really troubling. That we think we can get so far away from from our body. and I mean, um and so easily, without it having significant ramifications for us to to take it so, again, such hubris, I think. What do you guys think about this idea of puberty being a trauma, as she expressed it? And your body betrays you?
2: I mean, I think that's setting kids up for a traumatic experience. <laughs> I mean, you know, viewing, right. expecting, anticipating that it'll be traumatic.
4: Well, it's it's another way of teaching them to interpret certain things that happen to them, right? Sort of mm-hmm. cultivating this victimhood further. Like, you can't cope with this. This is beyond your ability to cope. So, this is how we're going to interpret it um, and help you.
3: I feel like on, on yeah. one hand, I feel like We as trans people are constantly being told that everything about our existence is traumatizing and that, you know, we that it's so awful that we're we must be suicidal. I mean, it's a narrative that we have to constantly reject in order to feel good about ourselves. You know, like, it's just this constant message. And yet there's absolutely no mention of the trauma of the actual medical procedures. Mm. That part gets completely downplayed. When I was, um, I had my surgery done um, by Dr. Crane in Texas, not knowing that he had like 12 malpractice suits at that point. And I was told that his um, complication rates were very, very low. And every single guy that I know that went down there for that surgery, whether phalloplasty or metoidioplasty has had complications, some of them very major complications. And then multiple, like sometimes six surgeries later, you know, it finally gets resolved and that takes up a huge amount of your life. And you were kind of told, oh, it's this one stage or two stage procedure and then it's done. But then six surgeries later, they're still dealing with complications. And when I was down there, um, just after I, so just as I was leaving, there was a young FDM So trans guy uh, just had his surgery and we were all staying at a surgery recovery unit. So it wasn't in the hospital. It was like the American system is very different from what I'm used to here in Canada. We don't have these um, private recovery centers here in Canada, but that's where they had us stay. And the nursing staff didn't realize that they were transferring us immediately from the OR to this recovery center. So they weren't really doing... Normal post op care because they thought that we were had been in hospital for days recovering and then were transferred to, to the recovery center. So this one kid, so he was maybe in his early twenties. He had a, a phalloplasty, and another FDM went to visit him in his room and found him lying on the floor in a in a pool of blood, and this kid couldn't reach his call bell to call for the nurses and he was hemorrhaging and he had just that earlier that day had been transferred to the unit from phalloplasty and the nurses hadn't been checking on him because they didn't realize that he had just been transferred after surgery. So had this FDA other trans guy not walked in and found him lying on the floor hemorrhaging, I mean, they had to rush him to hospital. It was an emergency. He would have died. So, and the the community just normalizes this, right? It's, it's like, because it, there's this narrative that I just need this so much, and these people care about us so much. And so these traumas just get normalized as just part and parcel of the process. and and trans people aren't lobbying against surgeons like Dr. Crane. I mean, that's the real trauma. It's you know, far more than any bullying or glances I've ever had. that real medical trauma and the amount and the exhaustion of it. and being on wait lists and then going to a, you know, sitting in a waiting room and having surgery and then recovering from surgery and a time off work and not getting paid while you're taking time off work. And then you have complications and more like that takes up years of your life. And that, that part's never brought up and discussed. It would be considered transphobic to Mm. ever discuss that. Just a very backwards priorities of rushing kids into medical interventions that are quackery with very high complication rates and we're being lied to about how how high the complication rates are and you never end up with functioning anatomy
2: and describing that as gender health
3: as this thing to celebrate i can't yeah. imagine a six i can't imagine a 16 year old going through that and we, of course we're never allowed to see the true results of surgery i mean they, the surgeons, of course, only put their very, very best work on their sites as examples of their work. Um, they don't show the botched surgeries or the, you know, you know, they're just the poor aesthetic surgeries. And there's one, there was one website, I don't think it's even up now. There was, it used to be a website called Transbucket where users could upload their own photos, but even they were editing. So, I mean, I know Scott Scott Nugent attempted to put his photos of his Botch phalloplasty up on there, and they removed all the photos. so we're not allowed to see the full range of outcomes anywhere,
0: and I also think who who's 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 I, I kind of has that 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 strength that Scott does like most people who have his experience they don't want to advertise that, you know that they they shrink away. Um, so so I think most of the even if it isn't censored out, most of those people are 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 self censoring and and just kind of. Um, they just don't tell the story, and they don't submit those photos, and yeah. So, so between the self-censoring and the active censoring, um, and then just like the, the glorification of these surgeons as kind of like our saviors, who who have um, you know dedicated their lives to you know to trans health and helping us, and it's just.
3: I mean, there are three trans adults that I'm aware of in Canada, because now we have the medically-assisted death. There are three trans people that I'm aware of, who knows how many more, that I'm not aware of, who are who have been approved for medically-assisted death because they're unhappy with their surgery outcomes.
4: That is so heartbreaking to hear, Erin. That's so sad.
3: But these are the stories we're not allowed to tell.
4: Well, well I think it... It bears mentioning that Diane Arantsoff mentioned that she's part of this research, long-term research protocol, right? And they just released their first study um, a few months ago. It was published in the New England Journal, and they had over 300, 300, just over 300 participants, young people who had gone through various medical interventions. And there were two suicides in that group, right, which was really understated in the results. But, and these were kids who got the quote unquote, best of gender affirming care. So this is there's clearly a lot that's not being discussed.
3: Uh-huh.
2: It's not only not being discussed, it's being glorified.
3: And because there's such taboo about discussing it when anyone tries to discuss it, it just gets just dis- dismissed or you're like I, I remember I tweeted the story about that kid that was found on the floor hemorrhaging, I tweeted that and I had trans activists commenting under that saying that it was lying, right? Because if these stories aren't allowed to be told, then they're not being told. And then when anyone dares to tell them, it's a very unusual story. And I don't, I don't understand what that, that silencing is about. I mean, there's in Vancouver, there is um, there is a support group. It's not an official support group, it's just an informal support group for post-surgery trans men I think people are just so I don't know what it's about. It's like this blind loyalty, this very fierce loyalty to everyone else. And I think people think, you know, if this is life-saving care and you had a bat bot surgery and you're unhappy with your result, I think people feel such loyalty to the cause that they don't want to voice what happened to them or their own disappointment with the results because they don't want to compromise it. They, I think they just imagine that everyone else has benefited from it and they don't want to compromise the care for anyone else by speaking out against the care.
0: And I think also there's, there's, there's an insecurity that, you know, if when you, when you let those doubts and those concerns kind of go to their logical end, it's, it's like what very destabilizing to, um, kind of directly confront. Yeah. The, the entire house of cards, I guess. Um, I'm not articulating this very well, but, but I think people, people avoid directly facing their concerns and their regrets because it all does crumble and you don't want that. You can't do, you know, you can't have that. So you've got to maintain that. This was correct. This is right. We're all doing the right thing. Yeah. And not allowing yourself to really, really accept uh, exactly what happened, exactly what these surgeries are, um, yeah, it's it's the, this kind of silencing spiral.
4: So, do you think most people to whom who have a bad outcome from a surgery think of it as maybe a one off experience that happened to them, as opposed to a potential more, more of a pattern that um they would explain it away? That
3: I think it is hard to determine what you know. I think yeah, I think everyone just assumes that that they're the exception that it went badly for them. Um And they were maybe that, you know, if you're told like there's a 30% chance you're going to have a complication and you have a complication, I think you just assume, well, I guess I, I, guess I just got unlucky and I'm not 30%. And you just assume that everyone else had is happy with the result. So nobody, because nobody is really voicing their true feelings, we really have no way of knowing, like maybe it's 80% of people that are unhappy with the result, but because there's this public sort of silencing about it,
0: mm-hmm.
3: we really have no no idea.
0: Well, and Aaron, you said that that Dr. Crane, you you found out after the fact that what he considers a complication is anything that cannot be corrected.
3: Yeah, he told told one of the guys, while I was down there, he told one of the other guys that he only counts it as a complication if it can never be repaired or healed. So, I mean, a person could have like 10 surgeries to eventually get it repaired, and he wouldn't consider that. He wouldn't include that in his complication um, stats. Wow. So I heard from the province that, so like I said, it was every guy I know. But the the so that would be you know hundred percent of the people I know. But the the province that was sending us all down to Crane said it was eighty percent complication rate, and some of the major complications like life altering complications.
4: Why was the province sending you there if there were so many complications?
3: Well, it was on a trial basis because they, we have the only surgeon that we have in Canada that can do the genital surgeries is in Montreal and um, they've been doing the surgeries for the trans women for a long time and not, it's only more recently that they started doing the FTM surgeries in our province at least. So everyone in the province was going to Montreal for these surgeries, but there were so many complaints about the quality of work that people were not happy with the results that our province decided to trial a couple of different surgeons in the United States. Um, so Crane was one of them. Yeah,
0: and none of this was obviously talked about at the conference.
3: No, I mean the, at these conferences they don't. They seem completely unconcerned. Unconcerned by the quality of the work that the surgeons are doing. All right. We'll wrap it up. Yeah. Not, not ending on a positive note, but there it's wasn't important. really a positive note to be found here. It's <laughs> true.
0: It's true. Well,
3: no, thank it's, you it's both. Joining us for the conversation, uh, I wasn't at the conference. This was all new material to me, and it was fascinating.
0: And there's many, yeah, plenty more to come. This is a marathon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> all right. Yes, thank you both very much. Until uh, until next time.
3: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.